This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, radiotherapists. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I'm Dr. Doolittle, and let me tell you, we've got a big show planned. Today, in the studio, we're joined by Kate Thompson. Kate is the manager of On Track at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, a service that treats 15 to 25-year-olds with cancer. Now, cancer strikes fear into nearly everyone's heart, so I can barely imagine what it's like for young people. Kate is here to help us understand a little more about what can be done to support young people facing such a difficult illness. Also today, our trusty neoliberal globalisation expert, the panel beta, (laughs) is going to take a look at how the foods we choose influence our relationships and vice versa. Think of a recent first date and compare that meal to one from an established relationship. Fresh sushi versus stale cheese on toast, fans. Oh, God. Okay, I'm going to shut up. No, I'm not. I'm going to say a little bit more and then we'll get some news. We've also got our news, of course. Dr. Trainer Wills is going to take a bit of a look at whether TV shows and movies should be allowed to show images of smokers. Plus, we're going to take a look at the latest recommendations for the flu shot. So stick around, people. There's lots to discuss. And let's begin with a bit of news. Bow, what do you reckon, neo-globalisation? You don't uh, like... I love each week you make up some new... Era, although you've probably been closer this week than, uh, than most. <laughs> you know, you know um, Trainer Wills, you know where I got this from? Where? I saw... Um, I think it might be new on the on the website of your university without giving too much away, um, but there was a picture of Panel Beta and a description of his research that said... And I quote... Oh, it's a goodness, quote, this is a quote from the Panel Beta. My research is focused on how neoliberal globalisation produces certain kinds of relationships between citizens, markets, and states of the rich and developing worlds. Oh, wow. well, that's actually quite accurate. I oh, know, it's pretty... I reckon go. we should have a segment on it. I thought you just pulled those words out of thin no. air. <laughs> From now on, he's a neoliberal globalisation expert. There we go. I don't even know what just neo means. start reading about it. I, I don't know what neo means. I know liberal means um, uh, Turnbull. <laughs> and globalisation is... That's like when you travel overseas on holidays. That's it, yeah, yeah. Right. When you go to Bali. So you're yeah. an expert on Malcolm Turnbull's holidays. Malcolm Turnbull's holidays in Bali. That is fantastic. Yeah. Welcome this week. Uh, <laughs> there we go. New we should ones. hear about that. And uh, Trainer Wills, how are you? Very well, thank you. How are you, Doolittle? I'm pretty good. Are you studying hard at the moment? Being yep. a medical student extraordinaire? Yeah. What's on, the, what's on the agenda? I've like, just started... You know, pe- Obzangani, pediatrics. Yeah, just started peds. Just oh. finished Obzangani, started peds. Oh, those children, they're so cute. Oh, they're so cute. Except they're so noisy in ED. Yes. Yeah, I couldn't... But I love it. Not be able to stand it. Hey, uh, Kate, pull that microphone up to yourself so I can say g'day to you. G'day, Kate. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming in this morning. Thank you for the invitation. Where'd you come from? Not far away, I hope. Not too many miles? No, not in too far. In a city far. or out of city? In a city, or so country. nice and close. Nice. So I met someone. You know, like I'm a moron when it comes to geography. I'm just really bad at it. And I met someone the other day and they were from Gippsland. And I said, oh, Gippsland, that's just fascinating. It's really warm there, isn't it? <laughs> I thought Gippsland was Mildura. And the, just the look of stupidity It is on hard the per- with patients, isn't face. it, when they've got their suburb and you think, I've never heard of that place. I have yeah. no idea where that is. 
Yeah, I know we're in. Are we in Brunswick now? Anyway, we're in Triple R. Um, so let's get on with the show. Why don't we start with a bit of news? Why don't you kick us off, Trainer Wheels? What were you going to tell us about? Sure thing. So I saw this article in the Guardian earlier in the week um, about how films and television influence children potentially to start smoking. So obviously in Australia, tobacco advertising is banned on TV. Um, but I had a quick look at the Tobacco Advertising Prohibition Act this morning because I wanted to see what exactly the sort of legal framework is. And it has an exception for what they describe as accidental or incidental broadcast or publication. Right. And I'm wondering if maybe sort of fictional depictions of smoking fall under that category. Tricky legally, I reckon. Anyway, so there are no awards for working out that showing smoking in films and TV po- probably influences children and others in a similar way to overt advertising. And I was talking to my partner about it yesterday and he was like, yeah, well, of course kids start smoking when they see it in films and TV because it looks so cool. (laughs) But also, you know, the the borderline these days between advertising, you know, product placement. You know, I've been watching um, a show on one of the things lately called Billions. It's about, it's pretty, it's, it's, I, I quite like it. I won't bore you with all the details, but it's about billionaires fighting the government, of et cetera, et cetera. Anyway. Neoliberal. Um, they constantly, <laughs> though, drink scotch. And they drink a particular right. brand of scotch. And I've not seen a scene yet where the label isn't facing the front. Now, it's Very a square scotch bottle. So, in theory, it's a one in four chance. Mm. But I've not seen a scene yet where the label isn't. Mm. And once or twice they've said, you know, only the best sort of, you know, because we're billionaires. Oh, my God. Um, so that's very interesting. They don't do it, you know. You don't. In the old days, of course, you used to see that, you know, brand of cigarettes people smoke. You don't see that anymore. No, but although sometimes you do, I think. So in reality t- television, especially, it's a little bit more of a grey zone because it's not. Oh, I don't know if it counts placements. as product placement as such when it's real people in inverted commas. So anyway, this article in the Guardian was from the UK, so a lot of it was UK centric, and I've sort of tried to make it relevant to Australia. Um, so the, this UK body called Action on Smoking and Health published a report this week, and said that almost 90% of teenagers reported seeing smoking in films in the previous year. That's not surprising. You know, yep. most films have smoking in them. Um, and they argue... Don't forget, 100% of teenagers would have seen smoking in real life. Uh, that's a very good point, yes. Um, they argue that, though, that because advertising and promotion has been banned in the UK like it has been here, they reckon that depictions of smoking in the entertainment industry is becoming a more important factor in youth, in the youth-initiating smoking, I guess sort of like a last frontier of advertising or, you know, media related to smoking. So their data, which I thought this was interesting, they showed their data showed that depictions of smoking appeared in 86% of Oscar-nominated films this year and four years ago it was only in 60% of films. I have no idea if this is because of some dodgy dealing behind the scenes. See, I've got, I've got a theory already. Yeah. Uh, not a theory, but I've got a solution already. Yeah, go on. Here's my solution. If the company's being paid to use a particular brand of cigarettes, then it's clearly product placement and advertising can't be on. Whereas if it's just part of the script, like say I recently saw that Churchill film, which I think is mentioned in the, it article, is in the article, Darkest yeah. Hour, um, you know, and he smokes a cigar. That, you know, of course, That's it, him. You know, that yeah. was Churchill. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So interestingly, tobacco companies are onto it. So in this Guardian article, they talked about this pro-smokers group called Forest, which sort of by the by is funded by the Tobacco Manufacturers Association, including companies like British American Tobacco. And I also thought this was funny. I looked them up and they described themselves as uh, the voice and friend of the smoker, which I thought was pretty hilarious. Anyway, so they campaign for what they call artistic freedom in film and television, saying that pushes to reduce depictions of smoking in film and television is an attack on artistic freedom, da-da-da-da-da. 
So the Guardian article also reported that shows like Love Island, which is some reality TV show which I've never heard of, but never apparently of, lots but of people watch it. I instantly want to watch it because I love the title, <laughs> Love Island. It sounds juicy. Can you go there for a holiday? Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe Says like, like, remember Love Boat? The Love Boat. <laughs> I promise there's something exciting. I forget the lyrics. But anyway, So, so love, apparently love on Love Island, the contestants were given a packet of cigarettes every day by producers and were encouraged to smoke on screen. See, that's advertising, yeah. That's I'd dodgy, have, right? I have a problem with that. Yeah. So I will just, in the interest of balanced reporting, I will just say that Forrest, the voice and friend of the smoker, state that there's no significant evidence that smoking on TV or film encourages teenagers to smoke. Of course, there was no significant evidence for about 20 years that smoking caused cancer, according to this pro-smoking lobby. Exactly. (laughs) I doubt that there's much data on it in the first place. So obviously the complicated thing here is that when we're talking about promoting what's essentially advertising smoking to everybody, but, you know, it's children that we worry about more, children and teenagers, concepts like freedom of expression or freedom of choice are really just an illusion. And all these pro-smoking groups and tobacco companies themselves are always arguing that in promoting smoking, they're just helping people to make the choice that they want to make, you know, to make free choices about how they want to live their life and that anti-smoking campaigns are just a nanny state, blah, 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 stopping people from living the way they want to live and da-da-da-da-da. And, of course, that's just a complete illusion, especially when you've got cigarette companies potentially, it sounds like, handing out cigarettes to contestants on shows, which is really just advertising at the end of the day, isn't it? So that's not a free choice. If you don't, if you, if you're being manipulated in ways you don't understand, that's not freedom. I hear what you're saying. However, you know, going back to my rule of thumb, if it's being paid for, it's advertising. If it's not, it's artistic expression. What if they're handing them out for free? They wouldn't be handing them out for free unless they're being paid. I would argue. You don't reckon? No. Okay. Do a little. Just expand on that a little bit. What, so, you're you're suggesting one's a pejorative advertising. And one is um, some kind of um, uh, rich value, a positive value uh, matter, which is artistic expression. Yeah. But it presumes that artistic expression is neutral always and positive always. Mm. Um, Artistic expression... I don't think it does presume that because I don't mind if artistic expression is negative. Um, My point being that I am sensitive to nanny statism. Okay. I think we go overboard. Um, Smoking's legal. Um, it's advertising's not legal, so I'm all for banning advertising. But smoking in public and kids seeing me smoke or someone else smoke or seeing a movie of someone smoking, I think it's... I, pers- I, I worry that we're getting overly controlling in the absence of evidence. Now, even though I suspect if we looked at um, the influence of movies, it would affect kids' smoking rates... I just don't think we should be always jumping to the conclusion of telling everyone what to do. Well, how Sorry, do you, I interrupted you. No, 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 it's fine. How, how then do you reconcile our enthusiasm for violence in kids' video games with smoking and the disposition that student, uh, students... <laughs> where's my head at the moment? Um, the disposition that um, uh, children will evolve into is being exposed to violence all the time. I've never bought that. Um, I've never been a big fan of that research. I, I don't think it's... No? I don't think it's even close to conclusive. Um, you look, don't think I haven't read any... it up in the last I'm, year or two, I'm, but I've never seen a good link between kids' violent video games and, uh, you know, there's lots of publicity around it, but every time someone does a study, it comes out saying there's no difference. No, so there's two types of studies, aren't there? There's the studies that does it create violence or does it desensitize mm. to violence? Yep. And the create violence, yep, the evidence is not strong that you 
participate in video violence, therefore you become violent. That's not strong. Mm -hmm. But the uh, desensitisation to violence is much stronger. Which is it? relevant here because it normalises yeah. smoking. Normalizes if kids are seeing it, it in yep. every second film or, you know, three out of four films. Yep. I guess part of my problem, though, see, in my formative years, we studied what it was called, you know, 1984. Mm -hmm. And I'm scared stiff of nanny I'm scared... I really worry about our lack of privacy. I really worry about the fact that the, everyone wants to influence what we do. Every week they tell us what to eat, they tell us what to think, they tell us where to sit, they tell us which, how to but transport, they tell us how to expose ourselves, uh, get rid of our rubbish. And most of it I agree, but there's got to be a, a line... And I worry when we start saying we don't want children to see Winston Churchill smoking in a movie. Uh, okay, I think the Winston Churchill example is a, is perhaps an exception because he's a, a real historical figure and it was a biographical film. So maybe that doesn't count. Maybe we look more in fictional depictions. Yep. But I would argue that it's either the government step in and regulate these things or corporations end up controlling us to an equal, if not greater, extent. So see, it's either see. so nanny state is not. It's not an alternative. They're just as bad as each other. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, but it's a balance. It's not as if the absence of a nanny state is complete freedom because it's not because corporations no. have their vested interests that rules. influence us. Yeah, there's got to be a balance. But I'm ju I'm just as scared of going too far as going not far enough if you know what I mean. So I don't want no regulations, but I don't want too many regulations. And I worry that it just, you know, a lot of it just strikes me as. Um, Paternalism. Of, what, do you uh, what do you think of people telling other people how to live their life with no real evidence, r rhyme or reason? Isn't that exactly what tobacco companies are doing though? And they are doing it despite evidence that smoking is bad. They're telling people how to live their lives, which is you should smoke because it'll make you cooler and more interesting. And well, they're trying to sell a product. Exactly. Isn't yeah. that worse than a government having the motivation that you should not smoke because it's bad for you? But in the absence of it being illegal. I'm worried that we're going too far. Now, if all of a sudden we decide tobacco is illegal and we're going to ban it all over the world, then maybe you've got an argument. But in the absence of that, it seems to me like influencing the world through stealth. Mm. 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 I, I think there's a distinction also to be made between regulations that um, where, where the state, say, is telling somebody how they would, should live their life, like don't smoke, um, and regulations by the state that is protecting somebody from somebody else's behaviour. Which in the case of children is yes, particularly relevant, right. right? So, you know, smoking in public spaces, you know, over meals and stuff, it's it's not that contentious anymore that you don't smoke around other people mm. who aren't smoking, right? Yeah. And now, yep. Yep. Um, but it is more contentious whether somebody, an individual, smokes of their own choice. Yeah, and so maybe some of what you're getting at there with whether when it comes to children where there's a, a lesser agency involved, mm. then there has to be some kind of intervention. Mm. Our next guest is Kate Thompson. Kate is the Program Manager of On Track at Peter Mac. Now, Kate is a social worker by training who's specialised in the field of adolescent and young adult oncology. Kate's clinical and research interests include the development of youth-friendly models of cancer care and workforce development initiative aimed at extending the skill set of healthcare practitioners caring for this population group, young people with cancer. So, g'day again, Kate. Yeah, good morning. So nice to have you here. It's great to be here on a lovely Melbourne day. I know. And just by way of background for the world, I um, sat next to Kate at a function this week. Uh, it was a fundraiser, Sony Foundation fundraiser, who fund a whole lot of youth cancer initiatives with they call youth can centres, don't they? And they're all over... There's about... There's a, seems like there's about half a dozen or so in Australia. And on track at Peter Mac was one of the early ones that they helped set up, I gather. 
It was. So the Sony Foundation's UCAN initiative is around um, raising funds to build environments, so youth-friendly environments um, that allow care to be delivered uh, in a place that's kind of appealing and supportive for young people. So... uh Okay, so you've got the, so what does OnTrack do? So OnTrack's 15 to 25 year old people with cancer. So do you manage all aspects of their cancer, the medical stuff, the psychological stuff, the social side? What sort of what sort of support does what does OnTrack do? Okay, so we're a service of a multidisciplinary team yep. that has doctors, nurses, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, school mm-hmm. teachers, um, mm. and our doctors are actually both adult and paediatric oncologists. And whilst they care for some young people with particular diseases, um, our service actually works alongside disease experts in the diseases that are prevalent for young people. So we actually share care, um, the medical care of young people requiring cancer treatment, and then our team has a particular focus on the psychosocial um, and physical aspects of care that might be more relevant to this age group. So we're a team that are specialised, trained and credentialed uh, in looking after younger patients. And what got you interested in this area? I'm going to come back to that, but I just want to figure out what got, you know, it just seems like such a difficult area. What got you into it? So, interestingly, back in about 2004 when I was working at Peter Mac, there was um, no services for young people. So, they were either treated in the children's setting um, or the adult setting. And it became quite apparent that there was this population in between who was sort of travelling through the adult uh, cancer system who had needs that were specifically different to the older population, which is generally what cancer is seen as being a disease of the ageing. So, myself and, and a number of other clinicians at Peter Mac at that time were interested in setting up a program that specifically targeted the care needs of young people uh, and their families, so their parents, their siblings. Um, And that's how we really started. And since then, we've gone on to develop what would be seen as um, Australia's leading cancer service for young people. Wow. Fantastic. Sorry, you go You go ahead, trainer. I was just going to say, you could probably talk about this for hours, but what are some of the specific needs of the 15 to 25 age group? So, so if we if we put the medical stuff aside, because that could be sure. a discussion in itself, yep. but actually think about this life stage and the particular challenges that young people experience. If we think about adolescence in general, we know it's a time of significant change and development. So if we think about the social, emotional, the physical, the cognitive changes that young people are experiencing, um, they can be quite challenging for a healthy young person. But then when on top of that, we put a cancer diagnosis in, all of a sudden the challenges that healthy young people face um, are multiplied. So we're starting to think about when a young person's diagnosed with cancer, okay, so how do we think about their emerging independence, their emerging autonomy, um, their body image issues that is challenging for a healthy young person to address, let alone for a young person who might be experiencing cancer and having significant side effects. Um, The role within the family, Uh, The role with peers, their socialisation, maintaining and developing new intimate relationships can be incredibly challenging for a young person diagnosed and undergoing cancer treatment. And then importantly, thinking about their future prospects for adulthood. So if we think about the importance of school, education and employment uh, for our young people, um, that can be significantly compromised as a result of the intensity of a cancer diagnosis and the treatment received. And then once we finish that, we need to be thinking about the lifelong consequences of a a cancer diagnosis during this lifetime. So how do we monitor and support young people into survivorship Mm. and in the many years following that they will still be dealing with the issues that have arisen. 
How long do you follow up patients for? I'm sure it varies, but in general. So certainly from a disease surveillance perspective, um, that's much more intensive. So that will be, uh, depending on the type of disease, can go for many years. And in fact, for some young people with particular types of cancer, will be for the rest of their life. Mm. Um, From a psycho-oncology, psychosocial perspective, purely based on the numbers and capacity of our service, uh, we will follow them up for about 12 months after treatment's finished and then for those young people that require ongoing support that's where we rely heavily on primary care GPs Mm. um, and other community services. Um, What does the this support look like in in activity terms is it outpatient or is it um, a combination of outpatient inpatient Um, yeah yeah good question so certainly the service provides quite a diverse range of support so it can be anything from seeing the young person in outpatients when they first present um, and right through treatment Um, It can be as an inpatient when some of our young people spend many weeks to months on the ward um, and the team will see them there. It can be through our group programs. We run a range of programs for young people um, that happen in our youth cancer centre. So it's really quite tailored depending on the young person's need, Mm. the care that they're requiring um, and the treatment that's being received. And the outpatient that can happen in the in the um, in the patient's home as well as at Peter Mac. Yes, yeah, so very good question. So unfortunately, at the moment, most of our care is actually delivered in the hospital setting. Um, but uh, and where uh, care might be required in the home, certainly we can arrange for some of our nurses to go there. But generally, it's it's hospital based. The um, I've visited on track and. Uh the environment's incredible. Mm. Like it's, you know, it wouldn't look, doesn't look at all like a hospital. It looks more like, a, I mean, how would you describe it? It's really funky architecture. It's beautiful. It's, it's you know, it's in that new Peter Mac building, obviously. Um, you know, it's a completely separate area and it's just, you don't feel like you're in a hospital at all. It's more like you're in a music studio, I would think, the closest. Mm. You know, really, everything's really funky. And Does cool. it have really good Wi-Fi? It does. So we do have really good Wi-Fi. In fact, the whole hospital has really oh, good that's Wi-Fi. Good. I which is suspect impressive. that's particularly important yeah. for the young people. It is exactly. Yeah. You know, on that issue of what's important, I was sitting to, sitting here thinking to myself, you know, because I don't know a lot. You know, that's become a new specialty. This. AYA, adults and young adults. What, what does AYA stand for? So adolescents and young adults. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that 15 to 25 age group, it's a whole specialty in medicine now. People pretty much do either paediatrics, AYA, adult or old age, and then all the various other specialties. And that's all new in the last 20 years. It wasn't when I went through medicine. And I haven't had a lot to do with it. But, you know, most of my experience comes from parenting and friends with parents who have all gone through that sort of stuff. And when I sit back and think about the issues that all my friends face with their teenage, with people in that age group, you know, the issues that are going to impact with cancer so much, the things that came to mind, body image, the number of my friends who have got, you know, the um, males and females, you know, kids are so sensitive about what they look like. And cancer, of course, has a massive effect on body image. Anger and emotional expression mm. seems to be just half of the course for a lot of kids and that you know just difficulty expressing their emotions in words and having so many emotions at the same time (laughs) and then of course which tips into communication you know they it's it's just a hard time for communication especially because of that whole thing you said with independence and Mm. sense of control um you know kids it seems to me the parents are going to make all the decisions and um direct over 25, yeah, people have had, you know, just how do you... Do, I, I, this isn't much so much a question, I suppose, as a statement. Are they, you know, are they the big... What other issues come to... What other things make cancer so challenging in that age group, do you reckon? 
Are they the biggies? Do so they- they're, they're the big ones. And I think for us as clinicians, it's marrying together, having a focus on the young person, so youth-focused cancer care, but also recognising that parents and families are the greatest protective factors for this age group. So whilst you're supporting the emerging young person's autonomy, yep. and they are your patient, in fact, you've got to do that in a sensitive way that is inclusive of all those individuals around them. So the one thing I would say is that, you know, with our young people, we're dealing with all of those normal adolescent health issues. Mm. <laughs> so we're dealing with everything. Um, and then on top of that, we're dealing with the consequences of cancer. So having a team that is skilled in understanding young people, their development, um, um, their health and well-being is absolutely imperative as part of the whole cancer sector. It really, just the way that you were talking to Little and, and hearing a little bit more about that then, um, it seems it's much a mental health matter as it is a physical health matter, if not perhaps even more, because of the transitional stage and the life life stages and so on. Yeah, look, you're absolutely spot on. And we've recently just finished a large um, national study led by Professor Susan Sawyer at the Centre for Adolescent Health in Melbourne Uni. And that's exactly what we found. And in fact, the consequences for young people's emotional men- and mental mm. health, um, alongside their parents, mm. is actually mm. significant and runs for many years Um into the future for them. So it's certainly an area of focus um, and an area that if we invest in, we will certainly have benefits and longer-term outcomes. I think that's, you know, always a challenge in Australia because, you know, in the cancer industry, of course, the holy grail by so much is... Um, medical treatment cure, you know, and, and especially, you know, it's surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy and immunotherapy. Uh, and my impression is that, you know, I'm a shrink, so I'm biased, but my impression is the mental health stuff often gets left to, you know, it's an afterthought. I think it's an afterthought and it's often after, it's funded um, after everything else. And Mm. certainly um, we've been really fortunate with both the Victorian and Commonwealth Government to recognise this as being an important investment in young people's healthcare, Um, but also strong leadership from our organisation. So Peter Mac certainly now has a very strong focus of of mental health being one of the key pillars uh, of the organisation. I've often thought, I think, from my naive point of view, that that must be one of the worst aspects of a cancer diagnosis, if not the worst, is even if you're cured and you have the best outcome ever, for the rest of your life, you're living in fear that it's going to come back or that every niggling thing that might happen in your body is, you know, the cancer's returned and you're going to die at any minute. And if someone in their 50s or 60s or 70s, that's a horrifying thought that they're going to spend the rest of their life in fear. And someone who's 14 or 15, I just can't imagine how debilitating that must be. I've had a few. Oh, sorry, Kate, you go on. No, I was going to say, you're exactly right. And and certainly, historically, we've focused on investing in the diagnosis and the disease management of cancer. But certainly in recent years, we're seeing a significant amount of attention now turning to survivorship and, and how do individuals and families survive cancer and how do they live well after cancer? Especially as that's becoming more of a reality with treatment being so much better. Absolutely. But it do, and it does hang around. I was going to say, I've got a couple of mates who have had cancer and, um, you know, got through it for, and uh, so in this phase of what they call survivorship, living with having had cancer in the past, and they have to have some sort of monitoring, you know, you know, sometimes for 20, you know, 20, 30 years later, mm. still having annual monitoring mm. and stuff. And it affects everything. Do I get married? Do I have kids? Ugh. Do I um, get divorced? Do I buy a house? Do I, you know, it just, it's, you know, it becomes part of people's identity in such a, a way that I think is so tricky, which leads me to my question. You know, you talked a bit about the kids. What about the families? How do the families cope? 
Yeah, so I mean, I think certainly the families that we see, particularly when they've been, um, you know, taking quite a strong role in the, their child's life, whether that be through school, um, through their health prior to a cancer diagnosis, it can be incredibly challenging for them to define what their role is as the young person's going through cancer. And, can, you know, cancer has a significant impact on families. For many of our young people, it means significant financial impacts. It means mm. um, parents often having to leave the family home to come to Melbourne, which mm. might be to support the child with cancer and leaving their other children at home. Mm. Um, the costs of cancer, you know, the impact on parents personal and intimate relationships between between them can be huge. So again, when we talk about supports and services for the young person, we've got to be mindful that the impact of a cancer diagnosis on parents, on grandparents and on siblings significantly can be uh, huge. There's lots of data that shows that um, the death of a child has, you know, disastrous impacts on a a parent's relationship, you know, really high rates of divorce following the death of a child. Even if a child survives, is it similarly stressful on the relationship? Do you know if there are higher rates of separation following even a sort of successful cancer journey? Look, I I couldn't report on okay. the research, but certainly from a clinical perspective in terms of the clinical practice um, and my experience there, um, you know, I would, I would say that we certainly do see that mm. and particularly because the consequences for a family are having had a, a young person diagnosed with cancer can be for lifelong mm. and can be for many years. And depending on the types of cancer diagnosis and treatment, um, that young person can require parental care for a significantly mm. long period of time. Hey, and Kate, you're doing a PhD. What's your PhD on? I am. So How far through are you? <laughs> goodness. So, so my submission date is next June. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, I guess working in the field, I've kind of become really aware that in order for us to deliver quality care to young people, we've got to make sure we look after the staff that are delivering that. Uh, so this is really looking at a model of staff support for Australian youth cancer services mm. um, that will include a range of aspects to actually ensure that clinicians are well supported, well educated, um, credentialed um, and have the ability to build and grow in the field um, to ensure that not only do we retain them uh, in our services but also um, that we have an opportunity for them to expand uh, beyond the areas that they might currently be involved in. That does, you know... At one of the things I, I noticed at the um, that fundraiser the other day at Sony Foundation thing, at one stage they played a video of this young woman. She would have been about 22 and she'd had cancer and she'd been a part of this thing before. So they had a whole lot of interviews with her. And unfortunately in the time between that, she'd, she'd subsequently died and her father got up and spoke. And um, it was really emotional. And looking around the room, you know, there's a few hundred people there. Um, there was a lot of people looking tearful. And, it, you know, it really got, you know, it brings it home to you. If you're doing it every day, nine to five, five days a week, you're dealing with these tragedies. Mm. How the, you know, do you have a lot of staff turnover? How do people stay facing that sort of stuff? So I think within our team, we've made a very conscious effort to look at um, implementing mechanisms of support. We know that vicarious trauma and burnout is big in the oncology sector. Mm. Yep. Um, and perhaps one would question, perhaps even maybe more so when we think about talking, well, working with young people. In our team, we have uh, a very strong model of staff supervision, yep. both internal and external. Um, we have we allocate funding for professional development. So we make sure that we have opportunities for people to 
learn the strategies and the techniques for looking after this age group. Um, we have a great team of peer support. So we have uh, alongside formal support, we have informal support uh, where the team really looks out for one another. We have an open door policy with all the senior people in our team um, where clinicians can come and go and, and talk and raise questions, um, raise areas of concern and if need be, very supportive of mental health days. So when a staff member walks in and says, I just need to have a day off tomorrow, it's been pretty intensive. Um, certainly, uh, I, along with the other senior clinicians and leaders in the team will be supportive of that. Hey, Kate, this, the work that you guys do is just amazing. It's incredibly impressive. Everyone out there, you've been listening to Kate Thompson, the manager of On Track at Peter Mac. Sounds like an absolutely wonderful service. And thank you so much for coming in. I hope you stick around to the end of the program and uh, you can, we've got, not quite so heavy a topics coming up. Um, <laughs> after this, we've got panel B to talking about uh, relationships and the effect um, that food has in a relationship and vice versa. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You know, I know this guy. He's a neoliberal <laughs> globalisation expert and he even knows about relationships and food. His name's Dr Panelbeater. Oh, there you are, well, there I am, yeah. Well, <laughs> relationships and food, that's how you're summing it up. Well, it's kind of like that. It's, it's, it taps into, um, well, the researchers claim it taps into theories of evolutionary psychology because they're talking about why, what motivates people to form relationships yep. and what motivates them to stay in them. And then they link that to food choices. Right. Which is where it triggers my interest because it comes out of like consumerist behaviour and oh. consumerism and so on. I thought you were going to say because you're more interested in food, interested in food than relationships. <laughs> relationships to food yeah. and so on. Yeah, Could yeah. be a bit of both. <laughs> so this, this uh, piece of research was published late last year and, and it was provocatively titled, and perhaps there's a little sexism in here as well, uh, Happy Wife, Happy Life food choices in romantic relationships. There needs to be a male equivalent to that, doesn't there? Mm. Happy car, happy husband. What, what else sexist can I say? I'll leave that with you. <laughs> um, the, the piece of research was uh, focused on um, uh, heterosexual relationships, so saying that at the front, so there may be some variations uh, in other um, arrangements. Um, and it was motivated uh, to understand how people choose their food, make food choices in their relationships during uh, relationship formation and relationship maintenance and wondering whether there's a gender difference in those respective periods. So one way to think about it would be to consider times that you've been early on in a relationship, even something as early as, say, a first date type choice, if it involves a meal and eating, um, through to the sorts of meals you find on your Wednesday evening, middle of the week. Sitting <laughs> on the table. couch. Yes, yeah. sitting on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, turn on Love Island. It's time for dinner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, just uh, to you guys, just to you, instinctively, do you think there's going to be a difference in the results? Definitely. Yeah. What's your, what's your, where does your head go? I mean, intuitively, I'd think that the fancy meals happen early in a relationship and the quality declines over time. <laughs> sure, that's the nature of the meal overall, but who's making the choices and who's influencing whom? Oh. Who's making the choices and who's influencing whom? Whoever's the more tired party in the relationship. <laughs> 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 on, on the first date. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, by preference, I wouldn't go to dinner on a first date if I'm going on a first date. I wouldn't go to dinner. It's a bit um, stressful, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I, you know, preference for me, it would be, if I was going to do that, it would be a drink or it would be something with an event like a movie well, because I just think the oh. meal for a first date just puts a little bit too much pressure well, on, especially if by the end hours. of the entree Look, you've decided it's a no-go. Not no interesting. <laughs> And you've still got a main course to go. <laughs> yeah, Certainly right. no dessert. No. Well, a, a meal might be overstating it. It could be as it could be as um, simple as um, going for coffee or going to going for a drink at a bar or something yep. like that. There's still a relationship to the choices being made. So, yep. what you choose to drink, um, you choose wine or you choose beer or you choose not to drink, um, and how much to drink and who's influencing whom. See, in that early phase, there's so much. Um, image sculpting going on um, in right. any relationship, no matter how sensitive to, you know, so the food you order, you know, I'm not going to want, you know, you know, my, whilst my favourite might be chicken parmigiana and chips, <laughs> if I'm going out on a date in the early phases, I'm probably not going to order your chicken parmigiana and chips. I'm going to go for something salad, a little bit more sophisticated quinoa, just yeah. to capture my very sophisticated <laughs> personality. <laughs> So, so that's good. So let me talk about the relationship formation aspect of their attention, right? So they, they established that the challenge facing men in, um, in formation period is signalling why they are a desirable partner. Oh. Um, and it's underpinned by, you know, uh, female selectivity uh, in a mate. So that's the that's the evolutionary psychology right. thing going on. So choices that the male <laughs> makes about, you know, um, if, if they're the initiator, that they make about where to go and what mm. to do. Oh. So I might right. show myself to be a really good mate and get my chicken parmesan and say, hey, wait a second, <laughs> yeah, we're going to catch right. the chook. Yeah, we're yeah. going to strangle it, <laughs> yeah. pluck it, cook it. That would, Very capable. Good, that would make me a good mate. You know, so they point out all the social norms that go with um, that kind of behaviour at that time in a, in a relationship. Um, so, you know, men will often display uh, conspicuous consumption in relative terms, you know. What's conspicuous they... consumption mean, sorry? Oh, that would mean, you know, buying something or going somewhere in particular that might be a little oh. bit more over the top oh, than you so necessarily flashy. need so to. So I might spend a bit more dough yeah. than yeah. Flashy, you know, yeah. Whilst yep. I've only got 50 bucks to spend, I might borrow 20 and make it a little yeah, yeah. So the evolutionary psychology is women are more attracted to men with resources. Okay. You know, to, to mate to mate up. You, you know, there, there's ways to challenge that as a stereotype, but but there's a there's a core mm. um, uh, resonance there. While on the other hand, for women, um, they of course are also doing signalling behaviour yep. during the formation of relationships. Um, however, they um, will often try and be quite agreeable. At this oh, stage, that's of, interesting. Uh, of, oh. of 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 So I hate Japanese food, but I guess we'll go to the Japanese yeah, place because yeah, that's I right. want to seem like I'm a nice. Person. Yep, yep. Um, and uh, so so the, the so the lead is being taken and the lead is being oh, followed. That's um, fascinating. Um, and the so the the research is trying to propose that that then has influences on what people eat. Now that maybe neither here nor there, but we can then think about the implications as a relationship then forms and is then maintained and how it flips on its head, where it does kind of go in opposite directions. So the research determines that women um, are influenced by men in relationship formation stage, while men are more heavily influenced by women during relationship maintenance stage. I wonder if that's because generally speaking, women are going to be doing more of the cooking. So that's part of it. But the research, in the way that the research, you know, probably time's not going to get us into the method that they chose, but essentially they established that that was p 
potentially part of it, but a bigger explanation is conflict avoidance. Ooh. On whose behalf? <laughs> the male. The male. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. This research does seem increasingly sexist. It just reminds me, it reminds me of the castle. Vibe? You know, remember the castle yeah. where she, oh, where the, the wife cream. goes in, yeah. Yeah, chicken or whatever. Oh, what do you call this, love? Oh, Resolve. this is the best chicken ever. <laughs> it's, it's what you've done with a love, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's reaching that conclusion. Uh, men are more uh, influential in the formation, women in the maintenance. Now, so neither here nor there, but then if we start thinking of it in health terms, depending on who's the healthier partner mm. at that particular time is going to have a particular level of influence on the health of the other person yep. at that time. So um, if, if, you, if the healthier person in the formation period is the male, then likely the eating behaviours and food choices in that period of a relationship are going to be healthy and, and obviously unhealthy if it's the other way around. That's very interesting. What, right, I'm still perplexed about the more, you know, the later phases. The, the maintenance phase? Yeah. What, what, what kind of perplexion? So I don't quite get what, the, what happens then. So the, so the main influence, the main influence comes from the woman, woman uh, but she's in, not in, trying to, you know, maintenance, is the yeah. ma- male trying to be more agreeable at that stage? What's the No, is conflict avoidance is the f- term that they use, right. which I guess is another <laughs> form thing. of agreeable. Mm. But, but I don't think it's agreeable in the same way as it's being used in relationship formation. It's not agreeable like subservience. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's just becomes less important, you know, perhaps in the relationship because they point out that in, they point out to other research where relationships are heavily driven by the satisfaction of the wife, and that's where the title comes from, Happy Wife, Happy Life. Is that right? Hmm. Um, you give me a signal there, Doolittle? Yeah, I'm giving you a yeah. concluding because I want to quickly cover flu. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, no, in a nutshell, it ended up just saying that um, men are more influential in formation and women more influential in maintenance. I love it. I love it. Makes me hungry. That's <laughs> yeah, me the too, only actually. conclusion. Makes yeah, me I hungry. got hungry as well. I haven't had breakfast. Hey, I did want to cover flu vaccine because I advertised that I'd cover flu vaccine on our Facebook page, Radio Tri- Radiotherapy Triple R. And Dr. Capri was meant to do this, but she had a family illness last night, so we hope everything's okay, Dr. Capri. But a few people did text in and say, looking forward to it because they, you know, everyone's thinking right now about the flu vaccine. So I did want to just hit the big issues, if that's okay, because um, it is such an important thing at this time of year. And I pinched all this from the conversation article by Cantus Subarayo, Subarayo, who's a professor at the Peter Doty Institute uh, in Melbourne. And here's the key stuff. Influenza is, the, is mostly a mild illness, but it has obviously some deadly consequences, especially if uh, you've um, got any form of uh, immuno, Im, immunosuppression at all. And 2017 was our worst flu season since the pandemic year of 2009. We had over 200,000 cases recorded last year. Feel free to jump in at any time and correct me if I'm wrong, Lots guys. of people died and lots of well young people in ICU last year yeah, too. It was, it was really bad. It was a bad year. Mm. And uh, there was lots of reasons for that. The main reason that the vaccine didn't actually cover the main form of the virus that came out last year, which was just bad luck. The virus mutated after the vaccine came out and also the virus in the vaccine changed slightly. So basically it didn't cover one of the main forms. And that should be a good motivation to get the vaccine, right? Because usually it works. 
Yeah. And this year, of course, um, so this year there's a big push about everyone getting um, immunised. There's four different types of influenza, essentially, two type A's and two type B's. And uh, people who are particularly high risk are uh, adults over 65, children under five, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and people with any sorts of disease like asthma or um, any other disease that affects your immunity. And this is what's new for this year. One, it's now free for under five-year-olds. As, as well as some of the other high-risk groups. And two, they've got these new enhanced vaccines available for people over 65. And there's two forms of enhancement, either a high-dose vaccine that has heaps of more of the um, antigen in it to trigger the response, but also a vaccine that's called adjuvanted. It says, I think I copied that down right, and it contains an additive that boosts the immune system. So basically the message is, everyone, get on board, think about having the flu vaccine, go and speak to your doctor. If you're in a high-risk group, you're going to get it for free. If not, it's only about 20 bucks. And if you do get the flu, think about antiviral drugs early because they work if you take them the first two days. Stay at home and don't infect others and watch lots of TV like Love Island that we've mentioned a number of times during the program. Okay, now on that whiz-through note for the flu vaccine, we are going to end the program. Can I say a big thank you to Kate Thompson who was on earlier from um, On Track at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, plus our two trusty panellists, Dr. Panel Beta, who, as you all know, is a neoliberal globalisation expert, and Dr. Trainer Wills, who's one of the probably one of the best third-year medical students in third-year medicine in her particular class of there's eight in her two group. And some people say she's one of the top people in that group of eight. I'm not quite so sure. And uh, and I'm Dr. Doodle. I'm a psychiatrist. Um, and uh, we'll uh, speak to you again next week. Thank you. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.